So this is Soulful Solutions, exploring ethical dilemmas from a spiritual perspective. Um, what we're going to try to do is a two-part series, with God's help. What we're going to try to do is explore some ethical dilemmas. But I want to get down to the spiritual or metaphysical mechanics behind these ethical dilemmas. So I'm not focusing so much on all the debate back and forth through the history of rabbinic discourse where these, these cases were examined in various different iterations. Um, there's much, much, much to be said on that. But what I really want to do is bring up different concepts in, in ethics and show you how there's a spiritual basis for it. It's hard to explain it, so I'm just going to do it. Okay, I'll start with the first ethical issue that I want to explore is the issue of plagiarism. Plagiarism, yeah, plagiarism. They say um, all wisdom is plagiarism. Only stupidity can be truly original. <laughs> Just kind of true. Okay, uh, and plagiarism has been in the news lately, so little news hook there. Um, the Chassam Seifer, the great uh, rabbi and leader of 19th century Central Europe, it's known that he told his students before his passing, he said, I know that after I pass away, some of you may be tempted to take my teachings and pass them off as your own. And you should know in advance that I, I forgive you for that. If you say anything that I taught you and you don't credit me, you just say it as if it were your own idea, I'm, I'm okay with that. However, if you say your own ideas and you attribute it and give me the credit when I didn't say it, that I don't forgive you for. So what is the concept of attributing authorship of an idea? Where does this come from? So there are different perspectives. One is the idea that it's considered stealing intellectual property. You're stealing from the one who came up with the idea. Uh, another idea, which is related to that, is that it's actually something called gnevis das, which literally means stealing the mind, but it really is better translated as misleading or deceiving your listeners. So it's not so much that you're stealing from the guy who said it. Um, you know, there's a whole question of whether you can even steal intellectual property. Maybe it's the, the problem is you're stealing, meaning deceiving, misleading the, the people that you're speaking to. And then there's a whole other concept, which it says in Pirkei Aves, which is often translated as the ethics of our fathers. It's not really called the ethics, but that's how very often in English it's referred to. So, uh, you know, why is it called the ethics? Because it's full of ethical teachings, what we call milidir chasidusa, extra pious teachings that are beyond the letter of the law. So over there in uh, chapter 6, Mishnah 6, it says... Anyone who says a teaching in the name of its author brings redemption to the world, meaning it states it in the positive. And it gives a source, a proof text from uh, the story of Esther from the Megillah, where the verse says, Esther Mordechai. 
that Esther conveyed the plot when Mordechai overheard the assassination plot from, from the guards, and then he told it to Esther, and then Esther conveyed it to Achashverosh. So Esther said, Mordechai is the one who told it to me, and then in the end it ended up bringing, through a various uh, series of events, redemption, because Mordechai then had a, he had a, it was written in Achashverosh's uh, good book, in his book of good people. So that, that's another aspect to it, that saying the proper attribution brings redemption. It brings, it brings salvation. Okay. There was once a, a speaker. He, uh, he said, and as I have once stated, and somebody was listening and said, well, why do you have to say as you've once stated? Like, if it was good, then just say it. If it's not good, then don't say it. So he says, no, but I want to give credit to the one who said it. So he was giving credit to himself. As I, I you get it. Okay, fine. One person got it. Um, okay, he didn't like that joke. I'll give you another joke about. I should have said it. I should have said it clearly. It was a rabbi. It wasn't. A, it wasn't a speaker. It was a rabbi. Anyways, this one I'll say very clearly before I tell you. This was a rabbi. Um, this is actually about all rabbis who give speeches. How come when rabbis end speeches? They say um, that they say something about Mashiach. They always end with like, and this should bring about the coming of Mashiach. Why do they always end speeches with talking about redemption, about the Gula, about Mashiach? So, um, so they say because when a rabbi gives a speech, he knows like a lot of the stuff he was saying he really stole from other sources. And anyone who says something in the name of its original author is maybe Gu'ulala brings redemption to the world. So he's afraid, he feels guilty that he wasn't bringing redemption to the world. So at the very end, he mentions Mashiach to try to bring redemption to the world. Okay, was that funny? No? Okay, I stole it from someone else. So, <laughs> all right. At any rate, um, tough crowd. So I'll share with you an analysis of this subject that appears. I'm bringing Geula to the world right now. In Lekut Sichas, that's the edited talks of the Lubavitcher Rebbe, Chelag Lamed Vav, that's volume 36, Parshas Kisisa. In short, the Sicha analyzes this whole discussion beginning with a passage in the Holy Zayar. It records a discussion between two sages, Rabbi Chia and Rabbi Yesi. Rabbi Chia and Rabbi Yesi were walking together, they were traveling, and Rabbi Chia shared a Dvar Torah with Rabbi Yesi. And uh, Rabbi Yesi said, that's, that's great, you really, that made the whole trip, basically, is what he told him. And then afterwards he said, by the way, um, where did you get this from? Where did you get this? Meman Shmasle, where did you, or Shmaslo, where did, where did this come to you? How did, what's your source? Uh, so he says, oh, yeah, actually, I once overheard Rav Hamnuna Saba saying this teaching to Rav Acha. So that, that's, that's where I heard it from. Okay, so that's the story in the Zohar. So the Rebbe asks a question, um, simple question, which is, why does it seem that Rebchia was 
passing off a teaching as his own, and he didn't really admit to the source until he was called out on it, until somebody asked him about it. So, the Rebbe gives one answer, which is from his father, from the Rebbe's father, Rav Levi Yitzchok Schneerson, who was a great Makubal, Kabbalistic scholar and sage. So, the Rebbe's father explains, well, you see, in the case in Pirkei Yavis, where it says that anyone who says the teaching in the name of the author brings redemption to the world. What was the example? It's a shenemer, like it says, and it quotes the verse, In that case, when Esther told the king about the plot that she heard from Mordechai, what was the situation? Esther directly heard from Mordechai. So in a case where someone directly told you something, then yes, just like Esther directly got the information from Mordechai, then she said that's where she got it. Then you would have to do that. But in the case in the Zohar, what happened? Reb overheard it. It wasn't that Reb Hamnun Saba told it to him directly. To the contrary, Reb Hamnun Saba told it to Reb Acha, and Reb overheard it, and then... He liked it, and he, he shared it with Rabbi Yaisi. Okay. So, that's an answer, but it leaves, seemingly leaves something unaddressed. And that is, as we mentioned earlier, the problem with not giving attribution, with not citing your source of a Torah teaching, is not just a failure to bring redemption to the world. There's, a, there's, a, there's another issue as well, which we spoke about before, which is it's considered stealing. Like we said, it's either considered stealing from the person you took it from, or it's considered stealing, meaning deceiving the people who are listening to you. Um, but bottom line, it's, it's, it's another issue other than the fact that you fa you're failing to bring redemption to the world. And in fact, it's, it's brought in halacha as a prohibition in Eur Chaim, 156, chapter 156, Kufnun Vav, uh, Halacha Base, and the Mogin Avram says very clearly that this is a prohibition, which is akin to stealing. And uh, the Rebbe's father's explanation doesn't really seem to address that. In other words, you hear what we're saying? Okay, fine. So Rebbe didn't hear it directly, he overheard it. So maybe that's why it's not a situation like Esther hearing directly from Mordechai and being uh, in a place to give attribution. But there's still the issue of, of stealing something, of stealing intellectual property. So how do we account for that? You following? Yeah? Okay. So the Rebbe says something interesting. In the Gemara uh, in Sukkah, Chof Zion Base, 27b, it tells us something about the Tana, the Mishnahic sage, Rabbi Eliezer, that that his entire life, he never said anything he didn't learn from his teacher. He was always conveying the lessons that he received from his teacher, or teachers, because he had more than one teacher. And yet... 
we find many teachings where Rabbi Eliezer is quoted. We're talking about, talking about Rabbi Eliezer Agadol or Rabbi Eliezer ben Hurkanis, where he is quoted. And he's not giving attribution. He doesn't say his source. And yet we know that everything he learned, or rather everything he said, was sourced. It was all things that he had learned from his teachers. So how do you account for that? How do you explain that? So there's a concept. Is a Talmud Chochem, is a Torah sage, permitted to forego the honor of the Torah? In other words, a Torah sage represents Torah, and the Torah needs to be honored. So therefore, if somebody disrespects the Torah sage, maybe the Torah sage doesn't have the right to forego that honor because it's not a personal thing. If it's your personal honor, fine, so forego the honor. But in this case, a Torah sage represents Torah, so maybe he's not allowed. Maybe he's not allowed to give somebody a free pass. The discussion in the Gemara and Kiddushin. Daf Lama base uh, Omid Aleph, and then goes on to the next Omid base, 32a and b. So, very interesting. It says, based on the first chapter of Psalms, first capital in Tillam, that, uh, you know, Asher Ish, fortunate is the one, V'teres Hashem Chavtzei, Torah's Hashem, the, the Torah of Hashem, is his desire. And in his Torah, he meditates day and night. So the Talmud says an interesting thing. Torah's Hashem, Torah's Hashem means the Torah belongs to Hashem. Torah's Hashem so he wants the Torah of Hashem. When does he want it? When he doesn't yet have it, he would like to learn it. But then when it says, and in his Torah, he toils, he meditates day and night. In his Torah, who is his? Torah means his Torah. Whose Torah is it talking about? So the Gemara says the persons. Before he learned it, when it was Chavtzai, when he wanted to learn it, it was Torah Hashem. It was Hashem's Torah. It was sitting on the shelf. But after he meditates on it day and night, and he puts in the blood, sweat, and tears, he works on it, now it becomes Torah the Torah of this person, of the person who studied it. And therefore, the Gemara concludes, that if a Torah scholar decides to forgo the honor that's due to him as a Torah scholar, he is in a position to do so, because the Torah that he studied became his own. He acquired it. He made it one with him. So now he has the right, he has the, the, the prerogative to forgo that honor. So it's a very interesting concept that there could be sort of a, a process through which Torah knowledge goes from being something extraneous or foreign to a person to becoming one with the person to the extent where it becomes indistinguishable. Now, we all know that the Torah knowledge he gained is from Hashem's Torah, and yet <clears throat> after he internalizes it, for all practical purposes, it's deemed as if it were this person's original thought. You see where we're heading? You follow the logic? 
So if somebody never internalized it, and he's just quoting, he's just quoting, then when you quote, you better say the attribution. But if you took a teaching and you internalized it so much that you're no longer quoting it, you're not saying it because somebody great said it. Some, somebody sent me a, like a meme with a uh, picture of Abraham Lincoln, and it had a little quote next to it. It said, don't believe every quote you see on the internet. Abraham Lincoln. <laughs> you see that one? Yeah. So when you're quoting because somebody great said something, and it's not necessarily your worldview, you wish maybe it was your worldview. You look up to it. You think it's a cool way of looking at things, but you didn't really make it your own. So then you have to say, if you're quoting, then you have to say who you're quoting. But if you came to a point where that becomes the way you actually see it, you rewire your thinking to see it through that lens, which really is the ultimate level of, of discipleship. Being a real student doesn't just mean being a repository of information and being able to quote your master. A real student means that the approach the way of thinking that the master employs becomes your way of thinking. So at that point, even though originally you heard it from the teacher, when it becomes yours, now you don't have to quote it anymore. It's not stealing. However, there's still the concept of bringing redemption to the world, but that's when you heard it directly from the person, like Esther heard it directly from Mordechai. So in this case, in the story of the Zohar, where Abhiya is saying something he heard from, from Rav Hamnuna Saba, he didn't just hear it and, said, and say, oh, that's a good one. I saw Rav Hamnuna Saba said that, and I saw how uh, Rav Acha re reacted to it, and I got to memorize that one and use that next time. No. He heard it. He lived with it, he toiled with it, and it became his way of looking at reality. And then, when he was hanging out with uh, Rabbi Yaisi, and he said, tell me something interesting, tell me a good vart. So he told him that vart. And he didn't have to attribute it. It wasn't stealing, because at that point, it wasn't, it wasn't Rav Hamnun Saba's vart anymore. It had become, become Rabbi own way of thinking. However... If you did hear it directly from somebody, meaning a teacher actually said to you, I want to tell you something, then it would be similar to the case of Esther who heard it directly from Mordechai. And then when you relate that teaching in the name of the one who told it to you, you bring redemption to the world. And what does that mean? It means like this. When a Torah teacher tells you an idea and you repeat that in the name of the teacher, you are revealing an unbroken golden chain going back to the revelation at Sinai. What does it mean you, you bring geula la'aylam, you bring redemption to the world? Oilam, the world, comes from the word halam, which means concealment. Geula is redemption. It means when things that are concealed become revealed. When Mashiach comes, the ultimate gula is that we will see that the creation and the creator are one and God will no longer be hidden behind this veneer that we call nature. But there are many micro gulas, micro redemptions. When a, when a student 
says, this is what my Torah teacher told me. That is revealing that that teaching is a link on a chain that goes all the way back to the revelation at Sinai. And even if you say that the teacher was mechadish, he said a chidish, meaning to say the teacher, your teacher said something original. So by citing your teacher's name, you're not linking all the way back to Meshach Rabbeinu and to Hashem giving the Torah to Meshach Rabbeinu. You still are. You know why? Because even if the idea was novel, the derech halimud, the methodology which is used in order to bring out new Torah insights, that was given by Hashem to Moshe, and therefore every student who says a teaching in the name of his teacher is bringing this revelation of God's presence in the world, because you're basically testifying to the fact that God revealed himself at Har Sinai and gave us the Torah, and that that's an unbroken chain. Okay. So that's plagiarism. All right. Let's do another one of these. Um, okay. Here's a dilemma, an ethical dilemma. I'm going to take a little sip of water here. By the way, that wasn't planned, but in that blessing I just made, we say, that everything is made through Hashem's word. So on, a, on an even deeper level, that when you say something in the name of the one who said it, when you identify that this world is actually Dvar Hashem, that it's divine speech that makes the world, then you, you bring redemption to the world because you reveal the fact that the world is really an expression of God. Okay, but I, I, I didn't do that intentionally. I was actually just thirsty. Maybe Hashem made me thirsty, so I'd remember that word. Okay, here's, a, here's an ethical dilemma. Um, what if somebody is sick on Shabbos and the doctor says, you know what this guy needs? He needs a pastrami sandwich. It doesn't have to be a pastrami sandwich, but it's, he needs meat. He needs to eat meat. And let's say you don't have any kosher meat. You just had a big kiddush and everybody ate all the, you know, people always eat the meat. So you don't have any more meat. So should you run to the uh, non-Jewish neighbors and see maybe uh, they have some non-kosher meat around? Because after all, you're trying to save his life. Maybe give him some non-kosher meat. Maybe it's, uh, it's okay in this case. Or should you slaughter, get a shoichet, a ritual slaughterer, uh, to do a proper slaughter, and even though it's one of the Lama Tesmalachas, it's a, a prohibited labor to uh, one of the 39 prohib prohibited la labors to slaughter a, an animal on Shabbos, but should you slaughter him some kosher meat on Shabbos? There's your ethical dilemma. Okay, so there's a letter in the Igris Kodesh, in the letters of the Lubavitcher Rebbe, which I think most of you who know me know that I have a great love and fascination for the Rebbe's published correspondences. Um, particularly, I enjoy the letters that are written to people who are writing about their personal issues, and I see how the Rebbe deals with regular day-to-day -day life. 
But some of the letters are written to scholars about scholarly matters, and this is one of them. Um, so I'm going to share this with you. So this is from Igris Kodesh Chelik Base from Volume 2 of Igris, letter 256. You don't see the letter that the person wrote to the Rebbe, but the Rebbe pretty well summarizes it in his answer. Basically, this guy writes to the Rebbe, I shouldn't say a guy, he was a rabbi, a respected scholar, um, that there's a medrash plia that says when Avraham Avinu, when Abraham said to Sarah, to our, to our mother Sarah, Imri no achosiat, say about me that I am your brother. Remember when that happened? When they went down to Mitzrayim, when they went down to Egypt. So he says, listen, if they're going to ask, who am I? Say, I'm your brother. Okay? Remember the situation why he did that? Basically, he said, they're going to abduct you, and if they know that we're married, they're going to kill me, and they're going to take you. So the Medrash says, Mikan... From here, meaning from this verse, this is the source, that you shecht, you perform ritual slaughter in order to get kosher meat for a sick person on Shabbos. What does one have to do? Abraham tells Sarah, if they ask you, if the Egyptians say, who's that guy? Say, I'm your brother. From here we learn that if someone's sick on Shabbos, he needs meat. The doctor says he needs meat. You go and you shecht. You slaughter an animal for him on Shabbos. What does it have to do with anything? Okay. Okay. So, the, the rabbi who wrote to the Rebbe suggested one interpretation, and he was basically asking the Rebbe if the Rebbe agrees with this interpretation. The interpretation that he had heard, and he was asking the Rebbe's opinion, was that we learn from this not to rely on miracles. Because Abraham has a, a plan how to protect himself. He didn't rely on miracles. So too, we learned that if somebody's sick on Shabbos, don't rely on miracles. You got to do whatever you got to do, even if you break Shabbos. Okay. So the Rebbe says, it's not really the most compelling answer. First of all, if that's what it meant, then it should have said, from here we learn that you don't rely on miracles. But that's not what it said. It said a very specific thing. From here we learn that you shecht for a sick person on Shabbos. Second of all, the Rebbe said, he actually did rely on miracles. He actually did rely on miracles. Um, we got this from the Zayar. The Zayar says that when they were going down to Mitzrayim, Avram saw a malach, he saw an angel escorting Sarah to protect her. He did not see that he had an, uh, an angel escorting him to protect him. So he was relying on the angelic protection, which is supernatural, miraculous, right? By the way, that answers another question, which always kind of bothered me, which was, what's he doing? He's like, he's protecting himself, but he's not protecting her. Well, that answers the question because she was already protected. It was, it was him he had to worry about. It was himself he had to worry about. She was protected. She had the angel. The angel wasn't going to let anything happen to her. But it, he was the one. Who, and, and, and in fact, that's what happened when she was abducted by Parai, by the Pharaoh. The angel protected her. But he, he, wasn't, he was not protected. He had to 
to look out for himself. So at any rate, the Rebbe says that that's not really what we learn that you should not rely on miracles, because it's actually in the story he did rely on miracles. Okay. Another possible interpretation is that we learn from this that you're allowed to commit a sin in order to save a life. How do you learn that? Um, because apparently the Egyptians, see, they preferred killing him to abducting a married woman. They didn't want to do that sin. They wanted to do a different sin. So we, we see from this that they were ready to do one sin and not the other sin. So maybe from that you learn that sometimes you do one sin in, in order to avoid another sin. The Rebbe says it's still not very satisfying because it's really specific. The Medrash says, Mikan, from here you learn, that you, it doesn't just say that you, not only it, it doesn't say you sin in order to not do another sin, it says Shabbos specifically, and then even more specifically, it says the type of sin, that shita, that you slaughter an animal. It doesn't say anything else. It says specifically that, that example. So the Rebbe says, why that example? Okay. So, for this, you have to delve much more deeply into the psychology of human beings. Why did the Egyptians prefer to commit the act of murder, which is clearly a sin, rather than abducting a married woman and committing that sin? Why did they... Why, why do they prefer one sin over another sin? So the reason is, and there's a truth to it, which we're learning from. I know they were Egyptians, they weren't so moral, but we're learning a truth from this. The difference between the two sins was the difference between something you do once and something you do repeatedly. Murdering Abraham is a one-time thing. You only got to kill him once. After he's dead, she's single. But if she's still married, then every time they, that, that Pharaoh will violate her, then it's a, it's a transgression of one of the seven Noahide laws, which is a, a, a cardinal sin. So they would rather commit one egregious sin that you do once than an egregious sin that is, is committed with every single act. And from here we learn that you shecht, that you perform ritual slaughter for the sick person on Shabbos. Why? Because if you feed the sick person non-kosher meat, so Every bite, not literally every bite, it's every kazayas, that's the, the measurement that's like a, the size of an olive. Um, every kazayas, every measurement that's the size of an olive is a transgression. It says this very clearly, actually, in the Alter Rebbe Shulchan Aruch, Shulchan Aruch HaRav, Oyrech Hayim Shin Chof Ches, in 328, Halacha 16. It says very clearly this reasoning. 
that with every bite of non-kosher food, the, the sick person is, is eating, is eating non-kosher and transgressing. But if you shecht the animal, you only got to do it once. Because you kill the animal, that's it. You don't have to redo it. So from here we learn that there's a difference between a one-time act and a repeated act. Now, this is talking about sin. Let me try to flip this into a positive light. Um, there's a famous, I wouldn't call it an ethical dilemma because it's not really a dilemma, but a, a query. Is it better to give tzedakah all at once or to dole it out in different contributions? If the person receiving it doesn't need it all at once, is it better that you should do a lump sum or is it better to do it with an installment plan? And actually the Rambam says that when you do a repeated action, that this has a refining effect, that even if the end total is the same amount, but the repeated act has a greater effect on the person. So if you give 10% of your income or 20% of your income, Meiser or Chemish, um, you can write one check at the end of the year, and that's, that's, that's super. But if you actually do it as a daily thing and make it a ritual six days a week, because in Shabbos we don't do it, um, then, it's, then, then it has an even greater effect, even though it's the same exact amount. Okay, let's do another one. All right. We're having fun? Is this fun? Yeah? Okay, fine. This is not an upbeat one. This is a kind of a morbid, sad one, but we're going to learn something very inspiring from it, God willing. Um, we have a scenario, which unfortunately is not a hypothetical scenario. You know, many situations in Teresh Peh, in the oral law, are constructed almost like thought experiments from which we can learn legal principles, and they're not real cases. Unfortunately, this is a real case that's happened thousands of times in Jewish history. And this is what's described in the Mishnah in Trumais, and uh, it's elaborated upon in Yerushalmi, Trumais, uh, chapter 8 at the end. Also, it's brought as a halacha in the Rambam Hilchas Yisaidi Atayra, Perek Hey, Halacha Hey, Chapter 5, Law Number 5, and that is, if a group of Jews is surrounded, besieged by their enemies, and they say, give us one of you, it gives two scenarios, it says a group of women are told, T'nu lono achas, me, me can give us one of you to, to be violated. Uh, or if they say, give us one of you to be murdered. Uh, and either way, we refuse. We refuse. So it's a very interesting concept because, you know, the classic ethical dilemma, I don't know if this is like the I don't know if there's a rating system of like what's considered the most quintessential ethical dilemma, but 
probably the trolley problem, right? The famous trolley problem. So the trolley's heading down the tracks and you could divert it to go and run over these people or those people and there's more people over there and there's less people there and do you make that decision? Okay. So this is kind of a, a trolley. It's a sort of trolley problem where you have a choice that could save many lives, but you have to hand over one life. And the Torah tells us very clearly we're not allowed to do that, which, first of all, from a practical standpoint, doesn't sound very viable. It would sound, it would, you would think if you were constructing a society and they told you, you have to get this society to survive from antiquity until Mashiach comes, you'd probably say, well, if I tell them to follow a law where they're going to allow a group of them to be killed and not give up one of them to save the greater good, that group's probably not going to survive, especially if they're persecuted. So logically, it's a weird thing that it's worked out. It's kind of miraculous that it's worked out, that we're still here. Um, but also, how do you explain it? Morally. Like, isn't it, isn't it a compelling argument to say, yes, I understand you don't want to give this person over to be killed, but here's one life, there are more lives. Like, why is that not compelling? Okay. So, the Gemara in Sanhedrin, uh, Lamad Zayin, Ahmed Aleph, says... Why was, why was the first person, call him Adam, why was he created as one person? Like it wasn't even Adam and Eve yet. It was just one person. Later, the Eve side was extracted from Adam. That was the first case of the splitting of the Adam, by the way. Okay, got one, one laugh. Okay. Okay. But why was, why was Adam created as one being? To teach you, say our sages, that every person is a world. Because at one point, the global population was one. You know, like you head into a little small town and it says population 900 or whatever. So if there would have been a sign, probably wasn't a sign at that point. Um, it would have said, world population, one. It was just one person. Why did Hashem do it that way? To teach you that one person was a world at one time, and one person continues to be a world. And when you save one life, say our sages, you save the entire world. In other words, there's no such thing as this type of math when you are weighing lives, you cannot say one life, a hundred lives, a thousand lives, because when you're dealing with infinity, once you have one life, there is no limit to the value of that life and nothing outweighs it. No consideration outweighs it. And that's why we, we don't purposely uh, actively go and sacrifice the many for the one. But in a case like this, where we're being told to choose and to make a statement, an implicit statement, 
uh, albeit, that one life is less precious than many lives, we will not make that statement because it's not true. It's not true because life is not quantifiable, which is also related to other ethical dilemmas regarding quality of life, people who we think maybe their life is less worthy of being preserved. That's another whole ethical dilemma. But we say that life is inherently limitless. And where do you see that? And real bold relief is in this case where you have multiple lives in one life and just you don't make that mathematical equation. Now, I'll tell you something interesting. Where did I get this from? Well, where did I get the first thing I told you from? Remember the first thing I told you, the plagiarism thing? I didn't get it from Pirkei I got it from Lakutei Sichas Chelag Lamed Vav. Right, okay. And then the second thing I told you. I got it from Igris. Very good. This I got from a Michtov Kloli. The Rebbe used to write something called a Michtov Kloli, a general letter, a pastoral letter that was, that was addressed to all Jewish people, to all sons and daughters of Israel. At several points throughout the year, usually in conjunction with the, a holiday, an upcoming holiday. So there's a Michtov Kloli, from 5739, that's Tovshin Lamed Tess. It's a Pesach letter. It's dated Erev Shabbos Hagodol. And in this letter, it explains something absolutely marvelous. I love this letter. Basically, the idea is like this. We know, follow this, that the first mitzvah the Jewish people did was Korban Pesach. Passover lamb sacrifice. And you're going to say, no, hold on. It was a chedish azel lechem. It was the lunar month. So the Rebbe addresses that and says, yeah, the Kliyakar says that the only reason that we knew how to count the days of the month was so that we could do the Passover sacrifice on the right day, on the right date. But the real first mitzvah was sacrificing the Passover lamb. And in that sense, it is the archetypical mitzvah because it's the first mitzvah we did as a people. We did it while we were still in Egypt. Now, sacrifices, there are generally two types of sacrifices. There's a korban tzibur and a korban yochid. A korban tzibur means a communal offering. A communal offering is collected from a flat tax, a half shekel. Everybody chips in and they have a a fund for this, and every day, for instance, the tomid that's done in the morning and at the end of the day, uh, that's, that's a korban tzibur that's done on behalf of the congregation. Okay. Um, then you have a korban yachid, an individual offering. So like a, a chatas, a person committed a sin, he has to atone for it, he has to bring his own sin offering. Or a toidog, Thanksgiving offering. So he has something to be thankful for, he brings his, he or she, bring their the offering. It's an individual offering. Now, the big difference between these two, practically, is uh, Shabbos. You cannot bring an individual offering on Shabbos. They say, sorry, come back Sunday. Congregational offerings, communal offerings, are brought on Shabbos. In fact, we have a communal offering that's specifically only brought on Shabbos, the Shabbos Musaf. Musaf, you know, by the way, do you know the cow's favorite prayer? Yeah, it was. It was Musaf. How did you know? You knew the cow? Yeah, it was Musaf. 
Correct. Thank you. So there's a Korban Musaf. There's an additional offering that's done specifically on Shabbos. And also the Tamidin, the, the, the daily offerings, they don't, you don't stop those on Shabbos. You do those on Shabbos. Uh, that's why Musaf is called Musaf. It means extra. Extra to what? Extra to the regular offerings, which are also given on Shabbos. So communal offerings are given on Shabbos. All right. So the question is like this. And this actually came up one year. Um, in the second temple period. Erev Pesach, which is the day when you bring this offering, fell on a Shabbos. And they weren't sure should they bring the Passover offering or not. Because if it's a communal offering, then it pushes off Shabbos. If it's an individual offering, then it does not. Now, why was there lack of clarity? Because it has aspects of both. On one hand, yeah, on one hand, every individual brings it. So it sounds like an individual offering. On the other hand, every individual brings it. They're all doing it, so it sounds, it sounds communal. And they all do it at the same time, in the same way. So, and they do it collectively as part of a group. So there are many aspects of it that sound, it could go both ways. Okay. And in fact, this is how Hillel rose to prominence, because one year this happened and they didn't know what to do. And Hillel came and he related in the names of Shmaiv Avtalia and his teachers thereby bringing redemption to the world, that he had learned this law and uh, that you do bring it. Okay. They didn't have Shabbos? It was Shabbos. Shabbos but you were allowed to bring the offering. You were allowed to bring the offering. Not only allowed to bring the offering. Yeah, they slaughtered the animals on Shabbos. And not only you're allowed to, you must bring it. You do not push it off. You don't push it off. It does, it's not deferred because of Shabbos. Right. Okay. So, yeah. So what do we learn from this? It's actually interesting because the Rebbe says that, um, not in this letter, but elsewhere, that Hillel's famous teaching, is actually also on like a homiletical level. It's a, it's a riddle about the Korban Pesach. The Korban Pesach is speaking and saying, if I am not for myself... Who will be? In, in other words, if an individual doesn't bring me, you know, like who, who's going to bring me? Every individual has to do it. You can't rely on the fact that your neighbor did it. Each individual has to do it. On the other hand, if I'm only for me, what am I? Meaning, if only one person does it, that's no good. Everybody has to do it. Therefore, in conclusion, if not now, when? In other words, even if Pesach falls on Shabbos, you do it now. If not now, when? You don't push it off, you do it now. Why? Because it has this strange paradoxical categorization of being both a communal and individual offering. What's the point? I'm not here to teach you korbones. Uh, the point is this. Because it's the first mitzvah that we've performed, it's the archetypical mitzvah, it sets the paradigm for Jewish identity. So if you ask yourself, is Judaism about the individual or is it about the collective? You know, some societies are individualistic societies where the individual takes prominence over the, the, the collective. Like America, my rights, my rights, my freedoms. Okay? Like, and that's very embedded into our culture. The, the lone cowboy riding off into the West. Other cultures are collectivist societies. And really, it's not about you. It's about the greater good. And 
the individual has to sacrifice for the greater good. It's about the community's progress, and, and that's often at the expense of the individual. So the question is, is Judaism, is Torah, a collectivist society or an individualist society? Is it about promoting the greater good at the cost of the individual, or is it about pr promoting the individual even at the cost of the greater good? And the answer is, paradoxically, it's both. And where do you see, in bold relief, that the collective will even defer to the individual in this law where we do not hand over one life to save many lives. Fascinating concept. That's, and anyway, so I, I got that from this Mikhtov Kloli from Tafshin Lamites from the Rebbe. Okay, so there are more of these. If you have a particular one that you want to hear, I can't promise you that I'll cue it up and play it for you because I'll only do it if I can find some cool spiritual explanations for it. But if you have an ethical dilemma for next week, I don't do these spontaneously off the cuff, but for part two next week, you could email me at rabbi at soulwords.org and that also goes for you watching on, yeah, you online, people watching online, rabbi at soulwords.org. Um, if you have an ethical dilemma you want me to research and explore for next week, I have some of my uh, favorites in mind, but uh, if someone has other ideas, let me hear about it, and we'll see you next week.